It's September 17, 1835, and Charles Darwin, yes, that Darwin, is rowing to land with three shipmates from the HMS Beagle to the volcanic shores of San Cristobal, one of the Galapagos Islands. The crew scrambled through a crazy landscape covered with lava. They're on the hunt for giant tortoises to eat. But as ship's naturalist, Darwin had a different job. In the five weeks the Beagle spent sailing among the different islands of the Galapagos, Darwin tells us he industriously collected all the animals, plants, insects, and reptiles he could. Among those creatures were 31 finches of nine different varieties. Those birds were Darwin's finches. They had weirdly different beaks, which had evolved so they could eat different kinds of foods on the island. Like cactus finches have longer, more pointed beaks than other finches, so they can pluck food from spiny cactuses. Before Darwin, people thought that species arose from the hand of God. Darwin's finches helped show how species can physically evolve over time as they adapt and respond to their environment. Case closed, right? Well, what if I told you that now, nearly 200 years later, the spirit of Darwin, the quest to understand the mechanisms that allow creatures to adapt to and survive in the natural world, is alive and well on a bunch of idyllic Norwegian islands straddling the Arctic Circle. And that instead of finches, researchers are looking at well, they are relatively small. They are gray, brown, black. Males have a spot on their uh, chest. Well, they are like very, very non-spectacular birds. That's Stephanie Muff, an associate professor of mathematics at NTNU. And the bird she's describing is the house sparrow, which, in case you didn't know, is the most widespread bird on the planet. And yet for the last three decades, these non-spectacular birds, living on a bunch of spectacular Norwegian islands, have given us cool new insights into how the natural world works. I'm Nancy Basilchuk, and you're listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Today, I'm going to tell you three stories from studies of the world's most widespread bird on islands astride the Arctic Circle. These stories have it all. Dogged researchers finding and counting thousands of house sparrows year after year on remote, idyllic islands, and how what they've learned can help us manage threatened and endangered species clever experiments where researchers were able to make evolution happen in real time, and then watch what happened when they let nature run its course. And last but not least, house sparrow dating preferences, and rogue sparrow fathers who court exhausted sparrow mothers and then father children with a cute little she-bird next door. Okay, so now we need to set up this... Uh uh, ringing and measuring lab and we, I think we can do it in the back of the car today because the weather is pretty good. That's Stephanie working with Henrik Jensen, a professor at NTNU's Department of Biology at the Center for Biodiversity Dynamics. Let's 
scale for body mass. And then we need a coloring somewhere. Yep, those are in that bag. So you can take out the colorings and I have the, the metal rings here. Okay. So what was the number of the nest again? Four, four, six. Ah, uh, four, four, six, seven. seven. Yep, yeah, right. And I said one egg, four chicks, and those are 11 days. No dead chicks. And then we just continue with the rings and stuff. Every summer since 1993, biologists have traveled north from Trondheim to the islands off the coast of Helgoland to collect data on house sparrows. They capture baby birds, measure different parts of their bodies, take a tiny blood sample, and then put a unique combination of colored rings on their legs that help researchers identify the birds throughout their lifetime. The blood samples have let them make family trees for sparrows on the islands, so they can see who's related to whom. It may sound like easy work, catching birds, taking a few samples, and letting the birds go, but you have to get to the nests to catch the chicks. And house sparrows, when they nest on farms, they like to nest up high, under the roofs of barns. Stephanie again. So now we are on one of the farms on one of the islands. It's a classical Norwegian farm with some chicken and uh, lambs, cows, horses. And Henrik has climbed up. So he really uses climbing gear and climbs up the walls, under the roof to check the nests. Even though she's mainly working on statistical analysis for the project, Stephanie went to Helgeland for a few weeks last summer to see how the researchers do their field work. I gave her and Henrik microphones for their smartphones and asked them to do some recordings. We found two nests where there were chicks. There were a nest with uh, four chicks, but one was dead, so we could take out three of them and ring them, weight them, measure them, take a small blood sample. And then we put them back up in the nest. They were just five days. So I was surprised how small these birds are. And it's already possible to put a metal ring on their leg and to take a blood sample that we can use to uh, genotype them later on. All told, they have done this with roughly 23,000 birds since the project first began in 1993. The place where they're mostly working has 18 different islands in an area that's a little smaller than the country of Luxembourg. Some islands have farms on them, and some don't. It's a really beautiful part of Norway because the beaches are white and the water is a clear azure blue. If it wasn't so cold, you might think you were in the Caribbean. And then there's the people. The hospitality of people in northern Norway is famous. And from the first time I came there in 1992, I felt so welcome. That's Tor Harald Ringsby, an associate professor at NTNU's Department of Biology, also at the Center for Biodiversity Dynamics. He was one of the original researchers who started up the House Sparrow Project. Now they say that it's not spring until we arrive in the beginning of May. Henrik Jensen again. So, welcoming people, beautiful landscape, and common, easy-to-work-with birds. That had researchers thinking of all 
kinds of questions that they could answer about the house sparrow that would also illuminate larger biological questions, like the first big question. Okay, what is happening in fragmented and smaller populations? What processes are important here? How can we understand better how to preserve threatened populations? This requires a little explanation, so hang with me. The house sparrow populations on the different islands in Helgoland are spatially separated, of course, because they're on islands surrounded by the sea. This physical separation allows researchers to use the island-dwelling house sparrows as proxies to explore important biological concepts about threatened populations, because threatened species are often separated into smaller subpopulations. But what often separates threatened species is habitat destruction by human activities like logging or urban expansion. Biologists call all of the subpopulations of an area a metapopulation because they're the same species in the same area but are separated too. Tor Harald explains why this is important. The whole archipelago is a metapopulation consisting of many smaller island populations that are connected because the exchange of dispersers between them. Dispersers, that's key. In natural populations, like the Helgeland house sparrows, some birds may roam. In threatened populations, the animals may not be able to disperse on their own, but people could help them. With a certain probability, every local population will go extinct. But also, with a certain probability, an empty habitat will be recolonized after being extinct for some time. So in a viable metapopulation, it is therefore crucial that their recolonization rate is higher than the extinction rate. This is why the researchers have been collecting basic information on the house sparrow populations on the different islands over many years. It's a way for them to see if they can understand what allows some subpopulations to thrive, while others may dwindle in numbers and even go locally extinct. A basic starting point is to understand what determines fluctuations in population sizes from one year to the next, to understand the underlying ecological drivers of these fluctuations, we need to know which ecological factors determines the probability of surviving as a fledgling if you have just hatched. That's why Henrik is climbing up the sides of barns, counting chicks in the nests. Okay, so now we have some chicks from a nest here on my farm. And uh, we put on first a metal ring. So this ring number is yeah, 8P144998. And uh, each bird needs to have a separate code, separate combination of metal ring with a number and color rings. Year after year of measuring which birds live, which ones die, helps tell researchers that One important lesson from the House Sparrow project is that there is a lot of variation in the quality of habitats, both in time and in space. These parameters are vital to understand how we can design management plans and protect threatened species. So here's the takeaway. 
When we design a conservation area or plan to manage spatially fragmented populations, one general message is that you have to be sure to conserve a sufficient area of the habitats where the species actually is present. Tor Harald Ringsby. But also to conserve areas where the species is not present at the moment. These areas are needed due to the balance of extinctions and recolonizations that I mentioned earlier. You must also be aware of the variation in habitat quality. Some of the populations will be more important because they are very productive and therefore generate many emigrants. Uh, they have a positive growth rate and will uh, contribute to recolonize empty populations. It took biologists five years at the very beginning of the project to provide the kind of scientific underpinning to support this more general assertion. Then there was the project where researchers actually tried to drive evolution in house sparrows by making them get bigger and smaller. The core question here was focusing on whether there actually is an optimal body size for a population shaped by natural selection over time. What decides the size of individuals? Why aren't they smaller or larger than what we observe? Is it costly in terms of reproduction or survival to deviate from the average body size in the population? These were the underlying questions when we planned the selection experiments. These are the kinds of questions that Darwin himself might have asked. What puts the limit on sizes for a species? Why aren't house sparrows as big as house cats? To answer this question, the researchers needed to actually physically remove different birds from different islands. They didn't want to mess with the Helgeland populations because they had so much information from years of research there on the birds and their natural habitat. So... We did some experiments further down, uh, further south along the coast, selecting for large and small birds uh, on, on two different islands. Henrik Jensen. This is a unique thing that we can do with the house sparrows, is that people are not so worried about it. It's not really threatened in northern Norway, so it's not a conservation issue, and it's living very close to humans. It's easy to, to like, capture all the sparrows in a population, measure them, decide who will go back to the population, and decide who will have to move away. So we did this for four different years, around 2002. We know that in the winter, the sparrows are very closely uh, connected to the farms because it's like, okay, living in, on a farm gives you shelter, gives you food, it's warm there. It's, it's a very nice place to stay in the winter. So we went there in the winter, in February, and then we went to the different farms uh, and then we saw, okay, here's a lot of sparrows uh, on this farm. Uh, if the weather was bad, all were inside, and we could just close the doors and the windows and put up uh, mist nets, uh, special nets to capture birds, and then capture almost the whole population in, in one day, or uh, just a couple of days. So we captured the birds and we, we took them to a, an abandoned farm, where we had sort of sealed everything up, off and, and made it into a sort of holiday home <laughs> for the sparrows. A holiday home? How lovely! Who knew? So they stayed there until all the sparrows basically on this island was captured. And then we had measured them, so we knew the, the distribution. The, the, this is a large sparrow on this island, this is a small one, this is the mean sparrow size on this island. And you could then decide, okay, we want these 40% of the larger sparrows to be put back. 
and we put them back where they came from, uh, and then we removed the 60% smaller ones to um, maybe 100 kilometers away into the nature, but in, the, in an, an area with farms, so they could uh, live on these farms instead. So that was on the like selecting for the large, and we did the same or opposite thing on an island where we selected for small. And evolution worked! As we expected, because we know that size has a genetic component, we saw a, an increase in size where we selected for large birds, we saw a decrease in size where we selected for smaller birds. So that's sort of good to see that, okay, these simple equations for how evolution should work, it works also in nature where we have a lot of environmental variation uh, compared to what you have in farm uh, animal breeding, for example. Still, these were wild birds where researchers were like a super strong environmental force, removing all the small or large birds from a population. So what happened to the birds when the researchers stopped? Okay, we thought if nature isn't really driving the, the body size into some optimal size, they should just stay large and stay small afterwards. But this is not what happened. They very quickly went back to the original size on these two islands, almost as fast as we selected to make them large and small. And this means that in nature, there are some forces that keep the size of birds, for example, on an optimal size. And the forces to keep them on this optimal size is it's very, very strong. Henrik and his colleagues also realized they could kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Since they were moving birds anyway, they realized they could investigate what happens when you transplant creatures from one isolated population to another, like you might need to do to save an endangered species. What do you need to think about? What doesn't work? So when we did this body size experiment, we also combined it with a translocation experiment. So some of the birds that we removed away from these islands where we wanted to make birds large and small, we moved them to another archipelago where we had removed half the sparrows and, and put translocated birds on it to look at what happens when you translocate individuals into a new population. And then it turns out that they, they contribute, but less than you would expect. And here's where we get into sparrow dating preferences. Because if biologists are moving individuals from a threatened species to a new area with other individuals of that species so they can boost population numbers or reduce inbreeding, they want those creatures to hook up. But that's not quite the way things worked. Because we removed half the birds, we made like the population smaller than the carrying capacity or the, maybe the optimal population size. So we thought, like, okay, when we translocate birds, this will be more like a conservation management action. Okay, you have smaller, you have populations that have decreased. What happens when we, when we translocate birds or individuals there? Will the population increase and, and how do these translocated birds do? Do they contribute with genes? for example, some sort of genetic rescue uh, experiment. And uh, they contributed little, but a little, but not as much as we expected, suggesting that there are mechanisms, maybe social mechanisms, that make these translocated males less interesting for the local females. Yep, the new guys just weren't that interesting as it happened except when the big patch of black on their breasts was really, really big. 
Biologists call that patch a chest badge. The other ones didn't really produce any offspring. And this is, uh, we, know, we knew from before that males with this large black badge, they are more popular among females than the ones with, with a smaller badge. Who knew? Fashion statement. Knowing about the preferences of females is, is then might be important if you want to do some translocation to try to rescue a population. Maybe it's better to translocate females or at least not the, the bad males if you want to then to contribute with genetic variation. This wasn't the only thing researchers found out. It turns out that the male birds with the big black badges, which are preferred by the females, can be real scoundrels. Tor Harald Ringsby. Dominant males with large badge sizes, they are also very interested in doing other things than feeding their own young. They would really be around and try to be the parent of clutches in the neighborhood. So they have this extra pair copulation mechanism where they are being a father to the neighbor's chicks and young. So, so, so they're running around with other yeah, females? Instead of feeding their own uh, chicks. So those bad boys are busy messing with the neighboring female birds. What would Darwin say about that? I think that he would be excited about the results. And I think that he would have been surprised about all the knowledge within ecology and evolution that can be extracted from a common species like the house sparrows studied in northern Norway. Even though the house sparrow is among the most common bird species that lives close to humans, it may easily be ignored by many people. But the house sparrow can actually tell us a lot about ecological and evolutionary mechanisms that are common in nature, but are challenging to study in the wild. And we can use the house sparrow as a model species where the results contribute to the current scientific discussions with insights about processes that are also going on in other species in the wild. I'm sure I'm not the first science journalist, or scientist for that matter, who would love to have a time machine to go back and actually talk to Darwin, to see what he would think about the house sparrow research. But of course we do have a kind of time machine, a message from the past, in the form of Darwin's own writings. And if this quote from his life's work, The Origin of Species, is any indication, he would have been wowed. Here we go. Thus, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely, the production of the higher animals, directly follows, he wrote. There is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that, whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed laws of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. Wow. I'm Nancy Basilchuk, and you've been listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast by the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. You can imagine that with nearly 30 years of research, we've only scratched the surface here. 
If you want to know more about the House Sparrow Project, you can find links on our show notes page, along with links to some of the academic articles that are related to the findings I've described. This is the last episode of the first season of 63 Degrees North. If you've enjoyed the podcast, leave us a rating on your podcast app and tell your friends. This podcast was written, recorded, and edited by me, Nancy Baselchuk, with tons of help and encouragement from my terrific NTNU colleagues, Anna Schlipper-Middling, Kolbjörn Skarpness, Ingrid Föderhaug, Nina Twetter, Christian Fusen, and Sivan Röv, and from Randy Lillalton from Historia Brücke. Thanks also to the 17 researchers from NTNU and abroad who were willing to be interviewed. Editorial help and sound design by Historia Brücke. Thanks for listening. <laughs>